Good morning. Well, this morning is the second Sunday of Advent, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week looking at John the Baptist as we prepare uh, with expectant hope uh, of Jesus coming. John the Baptist, who went before preparing the way, we looked at that last week, the beginning of, of chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel. And we're going to pick up starting at verse 7. So John the Baptist, he said, therefore, to the crowd, they came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. The tax collectors, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, That what, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts, concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear this threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word. And we just pray that you be at work among us. And I pray that all that is said and shared be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here in this passage, you see John's kind of message. Uh, and Luke's gospel gives you more of John the Baptist's message than the other gospel uh, writers do. And as we looked last week, he, he prepares the way. And, and Luke tells you, quoting Isaiah, the, the preparation that is to come and, and also what the Messiah is going to do. But here, begins to talk and begins, he, he's taught about his baptism of repentance for sin. And the crowds gather, and, and this teaching, this statements of John begin with some very harsh stuff. I mean, first he calls the crowd a brood of vipers. I mean, that means uh, the offspring of vipers. I'll just let you know, in, in, in the ancient world, you know, scripture and um, ancient Judaism, it, it, it was not a positive thing to be called uh, a brood of vipers. It, it's a negative thing. Um, 
looked down upon. And, and it has this idea that, you know, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? That John's preaching out in the desert, and if there was ever a fire out in the wilderness, you know, if you've ever seen anything catch fire, you know, the animals will, will know and will flee it. Especially even the snakes will, will flee from the fire. It's that idea. And John has started this message with, who told you, brood of vipers, to flee the wrath to come? Now, you know, that's not really a great way to, in, in our modern understanding of, of preaching or gathering a crowd, to, to welcome your crowd. Uh, that's not really how you would build, a, you know, a, a growing church or a, a large church or a large following by addressing them as a brood of vipers. But I want us to pause there and realize the truth that is being shared there. With what, what is going to be offered of the good news and what's going to happen and what John is, is going to share, this is important and a good starting point. Realizing in its principles you see through, throughout Scripture. And you see Paul talk on it and the idea that you know, he quote, Paul quotes the Old Testament in, in Romans and, and when he says, none are righteous, not even one. And later you see Paul in chapter 7 talk about this idea that we, we do the things that we wish we hadn't done and we don't do the things that we know we should do. It is this principle addressed to everybody in the crowd. You brood of vipers. That there's, there is within us a sin. That, that entry point, that beginning place, when, when God is at work here in what John is doing, we've been told already in the text that John is filled with the Spirit and he's, he's preaching and he's preparing the way and God is at work in, in him. And we see over and over in Scripture, when God shows up, people are confronted with their sin and how they fall short. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when God walks in the cool of the day and, and wonders where they are, you know, they're, they want to hide, they want to cover up because they know they've messed up. If you read in, in Isaiah, when he has the vision of, of God in the temple, first thing that comes out of Isaiah's mouth is, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Our own sin and our own failure and our own flaws just come to the forefront when God shows up. You see it in the, in the New Testament when Peter sees the huge catch of fish that Jesus has, and the first thing he does is bow before him, and he hits hits the ground, saying, I'm a sinful man to, to leave for me. You know, he's not worried to be in Jesus' presence. You know, we see that over and over throughout Scripture. And that, that when God shows up, and even God says, you, you can't handle my full glory. It just in our brokenness, in our sin, in our failures, we just we can't even handle God fully showing up. That's kind of how... John begins this message with the people. Did you peel away the layers and 
there is within us always some sin. Scripture says, you know, our, our hearts can be, can be evil. Even sometimes we can trick ourselves, we can rationalize and, and lie to ourselves that we're not as bad as we think we are, but deep down when God shows up, we don't measure up. That's the idea here. Some pretty harsh words. But they've come out to be, to be baptized, to experience this baptism of repentance, and John lets them know. My goodness, you, you fall short. We all fall short and fail. Then he goes on to say that the, the axe is at the tree ready to cut down the tree that doesn't bear good fruit. That you need to bear good fruit. And still another, continuing this harsh thought that John has, has begun with here. There's an axe ready to, to cut the trees down that aren't bearing good fruit. But it's something, again, that we need to remember. I, I, this past week was reminded of this idea I've said many times. The moment we think there's some horrendous sin, I mean, you can pick as, as extreme as you want to, maybe being a murderer or some horrible thing or a thief, or well, you look at someone else and think, I would, I'm never capable of that. There's no way I could ever, ever do that. I, I'm, that's not even a possibility for me. Is usually when we are most susceptible to taking the first step in that direction. To be careful to ever think we're not capable of some horrendous sin. It can creep in and we can compromise and we can progressively be led astray and that's what we see over and over in, in Scripture and in, in our lives. And then eventually wonder, how did I end up here? So this idea of, of bearing good fruit and this brood of vipers, who, who warned them? Well, then that prompts the question that the crowd then asks, which would be our next question if, we've, if we were gathered there. Okay, we know, we hear John saying you, you're supposed to you know, bear good fruit, bear fruit worthy of repentance and God's righteousness. And our question would be, well, what does that look like? So this crowd then asked John, okay, so what are we supposed to do to bear good fruit? And John's response is, if you have two tunics or two coats and there's somebody who doesn't have one, give them one. Or if you have more food than you need and someone's hungry, give them food. Now, <clears throat> we don't need to grab onto this one passage, pull it out of context, and then set it as being, setting a theological principle for all of the world thing. If, if we share our coat with someone or if we give some food to someone who's hungry, then we're good to go. There's more going on there. It's the heart of the gospel that's been established all the way through Scripture. And I won't go through the entire Bible trying to prove my point, but it's this idea telling people to put others above themselves. If you have more than you need and someone needs, give it to them. And you see Jesus build on that and, and move further into that. 
But this idea of put others above yourself, others' needs, others' struggles. Well, then you have the next group that, you know, the crowd is then told this. And, well, then the next group are the tax collectors. Now, I know you've probably heard, maybe you've heard preachers say, tax collectors were hated uh, by the Jews. They were kind of, they were Jewish people who had sold out their own people. And they were in cahoots with Rome to, to gather taxes. And one of the ways they made more money and were wealthy was they, they were allowed, even by the law, they were allowed to take in more taxes than was required. As long as the government official or the government entity got their taxes that, that they, they wanted, if you took in any more, you could just keep it. So that's why they were hated. They were, they were considered to be liars and cheats who, who sold out their old, own people and would take the money this oppressive governments were putting on them and, and add to it and, and keep it for themselves. And they were labeled as sinners by everybody. So this group that's come here to, to be baptized, this baptism of repentance, says, okay, we hear the message. What are we supposed to do? John doesn't tell them to quit their job. John doesn't tell them, you can't work for the government. You can't be a tax collector. You've got, you got to give up everything. And, you know, John says, just do the right thing. Be honest. Do not collect more than you're supposed to. Be honest. Do the right thing in your job. Well, then you have the next group. Another group that's there is soldiers. And, and there's debate on whether these are Roman soldiers. Most likely, they may be soldiers that work for Herod. Now, Herod, who is the king... Uh, well, actually, at this point, it's Herod Antipas, who's the tetrarch of for the Jews, but it would have had his own soldiers and his own uh, kind of army and force that did have the authority of Rome. As we said, Herod was kind of, that family was kind of in connection to Rome, and kind of appointed to their positions. So they would have had a lot of authority, but it's this idea they were, they were probably Jews. That's what makes sense with him out there wanting to experience this baptism. But one of the things that a soldier could do would be to, to take stuff from people. I mean, you had the ability, if, if you needed housing, if you needed a place to stay in a, in a village and there was no place to stay, you could just tell somebody, you know, the troops are taking over your house. Sorry. Or if you needed something to eat, you could just take their food. <clears throat> but there's also the idea here that, you know, Herod maybe didn't pay that well. You know, the whole concept of, you know, cost of living raise and keeping up with the economy and inflation, that didn't exist in the ancient world. So, you know, minimum wage and increasing that, that didn't happen. So maybe they would take the idea that, well, we haven't, we haven't increased, our wages haven't been increased, so that would be an excuse to take someone take something from someone, to exploit someone, or to use their power and authority to take something they wanted, just, you know, because their, their wages may not have been increased. And what John tells them is, you can't do that. Don't take from any, anyone else, and be content in what you have. 
Now, both of these things, he tells these groups, kind of build out of the first one. This idea of put the needs of other people above yourself. Just do the right thing. Be honest and upfront. And be content with what you have. That if we lived by those principles, if everybody lived by those principles, just the sheer principle of putting other people's needs above your own, I've mentioned this before, that is a wonderful way for everybody's needs to get met. If everybody put other people's needs above their own, everybody's needs get met. Someone else will meet my needs. You know, it's this beautiful kind of utopic way of thinking. Maybe it's this image of the kingdom of God. Where we all care about others more than ourselves. And that is how, out of humility, everything gets, gets done and people's needs get met. He's already mentioned this is bearing fruit. I've said before, fruit's mentioned almost in every, every book of the Bible. The purpose of a piece of fruit is to, to be eaten, to give life to whatever animal or person that's eating it in order to distribute the seed that is within it away from the original plant, to give its life, to nourish someone or something else so that the seed will live on and multiply. It's a sacrificial thing. And here it's to bear fruit, and this is what it looks like. Putting others above yourself, doing the right thing in your job, being honest, and not being greedy, being content with what you have, and knowing God will take care of you, your needs will be met, and, and don't exploit or hurt other people or use power authority against someone else. Well, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great idea. We have seen throughout history people, you know, set up sects or groups or individuals that, that live in this utopian society that trying to, to accomplish this kind of thing. But you know, it never really lasts. One of the reasons it doesn't last is all it takes is one person not living by one of the principles. And they end up accumulating other people's stuff. It ends up going awry every time. If it's someone in a power authority or someone that has physical power can, can take from someone else. And if they just get a little greedy, it doesn't pan out. Well, I think that's part of the story here. That's part of what John is doing. Because he shares these principles of needs of others and being honest in the situation and being content with where you are. And I think the people realize Wow. I think they realize it. If we lived by that, it would change the world. That's the answer to our problems. If, if, we really, if everybody lived like that, it would be great. And I believe that's why they began to have this expectant idea that he is the Messiah. Listen to this teaching. He is sharing this wonderful idea, and, and he must be the Messiah. But then what does he say? While they're questioning that and thinking, is he the Messiah? Is he the, is he the Christ? Is he the one? 
John then speaks up and answers their question. And he says, I am not the Messiah. He actually says he's not even fit to untie his sandals. And he goes on to say, when, when the Messiah comes, he will come and he, he won't baptize with just water. That John says all he can do is baptize with water. But the Messiah will baptize with fire and the Spirit. Or I believe it says Spirit first and then fire. Well, what's going on there? I think they've realized the beauty of what he's said. Does that make him the Messiah? And he says, no, it doesn't. Because all he can do is baptize with water. This symbol, this sign act, he can baptize with water and tell everybody, just try harder tomorrow. Just try to bear more fruit tomorrow. Work harder at it tomorrow. All I can do is I'm baptize you again and try harder. Because where the breakdown happens and why there are problems is because of what he said at the beginning. When he called them brood of vipers. The truth is we don't measure up. The truth is there are moments that we clearly put our own needs above others. There are moments that we are discontent. Moments that we don't do the right thing. Moments where we're not content with what we have and we want more. And the list goes on. I mean, John just touches on those three. The truth is, none are righteous. We don't measure up. We can't bear enough good fruit to earn it. That's why John says, no, he's not the Messiah. He can just baptize with water and tell you, repent and try harder tomorrow. But Jesus is the only one that will be able to give us access to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the fire to burn off what doesn't need to be there in our lives. It's a profound moment. You even see it lived out later in the book of Acts. See, the writer of Luke's gospel is also the person who writes the book of Acts. And every year at Pentecost, we celebrate Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes in this image of, of, of wind and breath and fire, and the Spirit is poured out. And one of the things in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is one of the few people, there's only about five or six that are ever said that they're filled with the Spirit. But in the books of, book of Acts, people are filled with the Spirit all over the place. And the, and the Spirit is referred to as, as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ himself. The Holy Spirit that we're given. See, John is letting them know just repenting and trying harder the next day isn't going to cut it. And he can't usher them in to the Spirit. He can't give access to the Spirit. That only comes from Christ. 
who was the real fruit who gave his life to give life to us, give life to the people who are killing him in order to distribute the seed, the good news of the gospel, away and among the world and to give access to God's presence and the Spirit to people. And he says it will be Jesus who will be the one who will have the, the winnowing fork Now, what that means is the, the winnowing fork, they would take a fork, a you know, pitchfork kind of thing, and put it on this large, uh, kind of flat-looking shovel. And when they would thresh wheat, you would, you would throw the wheat up and catch it. And what you want is the chaff, all the, all the stuff that doesn't need to be there, to blow off in the wind. Because you wanted to get it down to the grain. We, we mentioned that last week. You see that all through Scripture. You want to protect and take care of and care for the, the grain. You want the grain of wheat. It's what can bring life. And often the, the dried up part that, that doesn't need to be there, that's not part of the grain, was great for stoking fires, you know, heating up your fire. And so it often would get burned. So here we're being told that it's only Jesus that can do it. And sometimes we focus so much, and, and there is truth, there is judgment, there is when you reject God long enough. There, there are consequences that can't be undone. But God's heart, Jesus reveals to us the point that he wants to redeem and restore the grain. That he's after his people. He wants us to turn to him and to be forgiven. As we've said over and over, you can't out-sin God's grace. That's what John is letting them know. If all we have is repentance and try harder tomorrow, we're, we're in a cycle of a lot of problems. But it's Christ who's going to die for them and who has already died for us to pay the price so that our sins can be wiped clean and he can work in us, put his spirit in us and guide and lead and direct us. And just like sin is progressive, righteousness and sanctification becomes progressive and wants us to take new steps and, and draw close to him and learn from him every day so we're part of the kingdom happening on this world. And that often leaves us with the same question of, well, what does that mean? And what are we supposed to do with that? Well, repent and surrender to Christ and be open to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll just let you know, um, there have been times where I have experienced the Holy Spirit in profound ways and, and you know, sensed God almost audibly speaking you know, with a call to ministry or a call to go and to do something. But those are very rare for me, about four times in my life. But you know how the Spirit so often works in our lives? It's, it's, a, it's a little nudge. It's a little prompting that lets us know God is in us and with us and 
maybe gently correct or redirect or be open to it. Now, I was thinking about that, and this may sound like a completely silly story, and it, and it may be, and it, but on Thanksgiving, we were heading um, from one family, my, my wife's family, out to go visit my family. And, you know, kids and getting in the car, and you got stuff in the car. And so I had my, I had my briefcase, and I, which is this leather case, soft leather case, and I set it by the, by the car. We were loading up all this stuff. Well, I forgot it there. I backed over my briefcase with the car. Uh, several things broke, but one of the things that broke was well, my reading glasses. Now, these were not very expensive reading glasses, but they were reading glasses um, that broke. That, And then later, a week later, this was last, last week, I was out at Barnes and & Noble's and had to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom, and I came out of the bathroom, and there on the ground, as I was walking out the door, there on the floor were these reading glasses. Now, my first thought, you know, is our first thought that pops in our head is, oh, wow, God has replaced my reading glasses right here. I'll pick these up and pick them up. And... But then you got this gentle nudge of the Spirit that God so often does, so gently and graciously. Of just questioning and making you think, now, Chuck, does that really fit? You, you really think I... Replacing your glasses with this? How does that fit with what John the Baptist was saying? Taking these glasses, would, would that be putting the needs of someone else above yourself? Would that be doing the right, honest thing? I mean, it says in Scripture, don't lie. It actually says in the Old Testament, if you find something that's not yours, either leave, find who, is, who owns it or leave it there so they can come back and get it. Also being content with what we have and where we are. So as you would expect, I realized the nudge of the Spirit and, and God so graciously does and went to the desk and turned in the glasses and said, here are these reading glasses. Uh, someone left them. And they were like, thank you, and went on. Now that's a, that's a silly, maybe insignificant thing. But often it's moments like that where the kingdom breaks in and the Holy Spirit can work in profound ways. Those simple, small moments during the day, we talked about them a few weeks ago. Here John the Baptist doesn't say, you know, quit your job, give up. He says, just do the right thing. But the truth is we don't always do the right thing. That's why Jesus gives us the forgiveness and the gift of repentance. And once you repent and acknowledge your sin, wants to free us from it. Gives us the gift of the Spirit, God's presence, that nudge that, that wants to transform us if we're open to it. I believe that's a key part of the hope and the, and the peace that we long for during Advent, of what the Christ event means for us. Acknowledging the fact that there's stuff in us that is not so noble. That's why Christ died for that stuff. And then the Spirit wants to work in us and through us to set us free. 
to help us become the people that we couldn't become on our own. And it's often the gentle, simple, small nudges, the everyday stuff. Don't get me wrong, if God speaks in a profound way, you, you go respond. You go step out in faith, but sometimes it's the small moments where you discover God. So I invite you in this Advent to just be open to where you may need to surrender to what God may want to do and to be aware of the, the gentle nudges. That's the gift of the Spirit that only Christ can give us access to. Because He laid down everything He has to redeem us, to restore us, and to give us the life that He would have for us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your presence with us and your grace in the fact that we fall short and fail. In those moments where we just are confronted with our sin and we see that in Scripture, people, you always provide a way forward. Your grace goes first. You want to give us your spirit, that nudge, the prompting of your presence. You want to set us free from the sin that we're enslaved to. Help us just to be open to that. May we be aware and open to what you want to do in us this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.